This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Marcus Speaker, Associate Chief Medical Information Officer of Carilion Clinic in Roanoke, Virginia. Dr. Speaker, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's great to be here. Now, before we jump into the questions, could you please tell us a little bit about your background? Certainly would, would love to. Uh, I started my undergraduate work many years ago in electrical and computer engineering, and that served as a, as a basis for where I am today. Uh, after graduating, I decided that I wanted something more and decided to head to medical school. And on the way there, I picked up a master's in community health education, went to medical school at West Virginia University, and afterwards completed a residency in family medicine. And as I was finishing up my residency in family medicine, I was asked if I wanted to stay on for another year and do a medical informatics fellowship given my, my previous work in, uh, in computer engineering. So decided to do that and that then blossomed into um, the career that I have now um, starting with uh, a conversion uh, from one EMR to our, our current EPIC system um, and I helped with the data conversion of that entire medical record extracting, um, extracting all the data and, and moving that over. Um, and then moved into uh, meaningful use um, along the along the way um, picked up uh, a board certification in clinical informatics um, and then continue to, to to grow and do more work in large data and EMR op- optimizations um, and that has kind of taken me to where I am today. Um, I still teach in uh, in the residency program. Um, and work with medical students from the Virginia Tech Carolina School of Medicine, in addition to um, all the chief medical um, information officer type work that I do. Fantastic, we're glad to have you here. Now, how has COVID-19 changed your strategy and view around virtual care technology? Well, when when COVID-19 hit, uh, we didn't have much of a, uh, a virtual care strategy we had been talking about moving into video visits Um, and so in the early days um, in the early days of COVID we were doing about a hundred video visits per day out of 7,000 total visits in the two to three weeks after um, things started shutting down that jumped sevenfold to about 700 visits per day and as we went further um, getting into the, the July and August timeframe, uh, we expanded another fourfold, um, getting upwards of 2,800 video visits a day. So our, our telemedicine program just, um, just launched uh, in, in a major way. Um, as, as we were rolling that out, we learned a lot. Uh, we learned a lot about different vendors um, the software vendors. So when we first started, our providers were using a combination of Zoom and Doximity, um, and we quickly found that um, while some of those are safe, um, it's important to know what's happening with your data and how your um, how your vendors are using using um, that data that comes from those telehealth visits. And so we um, we rapidly standardized on a provider. 
um, on a, a provider vendor, and um, we have been able to integrate that in, making things a lot more efficient for our providers. Moving forward, we're continuing to look at ways to become even more efficient for both um, provider-patient, provider-to-provider, um, as well as patient-to-family interaction. So that was an area that, um, that caught us a little off guard um, in terms of patient-to-family. So when we locked down the hospitals and couldn't have visitors, how do we help patients have um, contact with their, with their family and loved ones? And so working on platforms, um, utilizing tablets and, um, and other technologies so that, um, so that those patients can still be in contact with families is very important. Um, also, in the, um, in the neonatal intensive care unit, being able to have families um, have contact and, and to be able to um, have contact with, with their babies uh, was another area that we have been um, rapidly working on and deploying. Absolutely. Wow. That sounds like you've had quite a journey with the virtual health, both internally as well as during the telehealth visits. Now, how are you seeing enterprise imaging and radiology evolving in the future? I know it's a little bit of a, a change from virtual care, but I, I'm interested in that technology as well. Well, I, I see a number of things happening, um, and certainly um, some, some exciting and, and some um, a little bit more challenging. Um, here in the next few months, um, the Cures Act, um, which uh, we've been looking at very carefully um, in regards to the, the rules around information blocking. Um, so we know that our patients are going to have more access to, um, to their medical record, and certainly imaging and radiology is part of that. So patients being able to see those results and share those results with, um, with other providers or, or other people. Uh, and certainly the, the Cures Act, um, what I would consider phase one, um, which is uh, coming out right around the corner, is only the first step. And so I see in the not too distant future, taking that to the next step and requiring that we release the imaging results to patients, not just the, the written reports, but giving them um, at their fingertips in a, in a form that they want access to those results. So that's kind of the, the first place that I see us moving over uh, the, short, the short period of time. The next, the next thing I, I think will continue to become um, a major factor is direct consumer advertising for certain uh, imaging and radiology, this notion of full body CT scans that, um, that, that somebody can go in and, and pay for out of pocket. Um, we're seeing more of that start to come up. And then the question is, what, what do you do with those results? Um, as we find more incidental findings, um, the workups that are associated with those, um, certainly, a workup for for an incidental finding is not necessarily a benign thing, and that can lead to to, to harm. And so, trying to figure out how to um, how to deal with with that direct to consumer um, radiology, um, and then there's PAMA. Um, so, integrating clinical decision support 
making sure that um, they're ordering the right test for the right patient based upon symptoms um, and keeping that clinical decision support up to date and, and helping our providers um, engage um, in and around that clinical decision support. Um, I think that that's going to continue to evolve. Um, and then finally, uh, working with, with things like vendor-neutral archives. So where do we put all of our, um, all of our radiology results? Um, and not just those, um, not just those results that come off the, the x-ray machine or the CT scan, but the, the resident who is using um, handheld ultrasound in the emergency room. Um, and so they have, they have the ultrasound app on their iPhone. How do we get those images into an archive that also works with the electronic medical record um, in a way that all the other images um, come together? And so uh, we know that there's going to be continued, uh, continued disruptive technology in this space, and it's trying to leverage that into, um, into the VNAs um, and em embrace that into clinical workflows, both at the time of visit and then at time of retrieval. So I think there's a, there are a lot of exciting things on the horizon for enterprise imaging. That's fantastic. It's great to hear kind of all the aspects of enterprise imaging and radiology that could really be evolving and the things that you're thinking about there. Um, I, I know you just mentioned several things that you're excited about. Is there anything that you're nervous about right now? Oh, there are there are lots of things um, out there that get me get me nervous or keep me up at night. Um, one thing is uh, is a move to transparency. So I mentioned the the Cures Act and sharing information with the patient. Um, I think as we continue to move forward, um, sharing not only clinical data with the patient, but also including um, and being transparent with the costs. Uh, so that patients are able to make better decisions um, and engage with healthcare providers um, in a way that they haven't been able to in the past, um, allowing patients to make it make a decision about where they get their care based on cost and clinical outcomes. Um, that does make me a, a, a little bit nervous. I also think about the provider-patient interaction around new tech and apps. So as we continue to roll out new technology in the form of wearables and other smartphone apps and provide patients their information, uh, that's going to change the way that we, that we can engage with our patients or that our patients will want to engage with us. And that will require a, a paradigm shift in the coming years. Um, just uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was in a, a conference with, um, with Ed Marks, the former uh, chief information officer at Cleveland Clinic, and, and he, was, he was talking about um, a situation where, um, um, where, where he had, had some chest pains during a race, and he was able to send an EKG to, to a hospital so that the emergency room had the EKG and knew what was going on, and they were able not only to to prepare but contact 
providers at a different hospital to put a plan together so that when um, so that when he arrived at at the hospital they were ready to go but then also um, post discharge being able to follow up on a daily basis or every few days with his provider that was making changes in his regimen so you know right now um, I engage with my patients maybe once every three months for for people who are stable maybe once a week for people who are um, a little less stable um, being able to move that to a a day-to-day conversation through the use of um, uh, things like email or um, secure messaging with patients um, that's going to that's going to change the way that providers and patients um, communicate um, and a lot of providers are not ready to do that and so I get worried about that change management process um, so but it's also very exciting to be able to um, to continue to um, engage patients in the way that they want to be engaged and help them lead healthier lives so there's there's some positives there, but it's going to require some change management. Got it. I, I see the nuance in the situation, and there's a lot to think about. Now, finally, as we wrap up this conversation, I want to ask you about leadership. Briefly, could you tell us three pieces of advice that you would have for emerging leaders today? Yes. Um, the, the first thing that I would tell those, those new, new clinical leaders um, is that leadership is changing. Um, and you know, leading Generation Z and leading millennials is very different than the way that my father or my grandfather would have led. That notion of command and control, um, that's, that's gone. And so um, I would encourage those new leaders of today to really look at new leadership principles and 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 think about leading in a in a different way um, learning how gen z millennials who are making up the, the largest part of our workforce now um, how they think what their values are in general um, so that they can interact better and again that, that the command and control um, will not will not work with that with that group at least not for very long um, the second thing that I would, um, the second piece of advice that I would have would be um, embrace diversity um, and having a diverse team that not only does the work but also provides feedback. Um, and having having that diverse team providing feedback um, really helps to eliminate blind spots, those places uh, that you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so it's not, um, when we think about diversity nowadays, it's not enough um, to, to simply have what I would call butts and chairs doing the work. Um, we really have to engage our, um, the people that are working for us and get that feedback to, to eliminate those blind spots. Um, and then finally, um, I would say, find a mentor um, that will help help you develop um, and if you don't have somebody that um, that's readily available um, at least initially find someone and pay them to do that 
put time and attention into your professional development. Um, do not try to do professional leadership development. Um, don't try to do that off the edge of your desk. Really commit to um, engaging and, and learning and making yourself better. Dr. Speaker, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a fascinating discussion. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thank you very much.